Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. As I've been talking to various leaders over the past few weeks, a problem has been common to a number of organizations and churches that I want to address today, and that is creating functional unity. Now, I'm not talking today about spiritual unity or uh, some kind of theological unity. I'll mention those a little more positively in just a moment as a part of what I'm talking about, but that's not my focus today. My focus is functional unity. How do you create unity for the accomplishment of tasks, uh, the fulfillment of mission, uh, for the advancement of the cause or the purpose for which your church organization exists? Creating functional unity. Now, as I've said, it's a real problem today because the uh, pandemic, social unrest, and political turmoil is creating all kinds of tension, stress, and uh, even chaos in churches and ministry organizations, and particularly even among the leadership of these kind of uh, groups. And so it's important for us to have some strategies in place, to put some practices, some best practices to work, and to do what we can to create functional unity. Now, the best example of this uh, in my ministry has been the seminary's experience of relocating from Northern California to Southern California and renaming from Golden Gate to Gateway Seminary. Now, I won't take time to retell that story today. If you aren't familiar with it, you can read about it in my book, A Leading Major Change in Your Ministry. But I do want to talk about one aspect of it. In the book, I identify what we call the seven miracles. And these are seven things that happened throughout the relocation process for which there was no earthly explanation and which demonstrated to us conclusively that God was carrying us along in the process. Now, when I list these seven, I always list the most significant one last, and the most significant miracle was that God gave us unity. And I'd like to just, for sake of time, uh, read just a part of a page of what I wrote about that experience. Despite the awesome power shown in these first six miracles, Perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's power during the relocation was the supernatural unity of the seminary community. We moved one of the largest seminaries in North America with minimal external opposition and no internal conflict. Our graduates supported us, most of our students stayed with us, and dozens of employees sacrificed to relocate with their colleagues. God galvanized our employees, unifying faculty and staff in dramatic ways from the first announcement of the sale. Our employees were aware of the conflict. This made them sensitive to the need for a resolution. When they heard my presentation regarding the campus sale, their response was measured and reflective. There were no emotional outbursts or angry explosions, only an overwhelming sense of the gravity and magnitude of the situation. Right after the announcement, our employees participated in dialogue sessions and processed the news carefully and prayerfully. They studied the information we provided and reflected on the reasons for the decision. Two days later, the seminary community gathered for the first chapel service after the sale announcement. After some heartfelt comments from me praising the employees and students for their mature response to the relocation announcement, a senior faculty member stood up in the congregation and asked if he could speak. This was highly unusual during chapel, but his stature earned him the right to be heard. He said something close to this, Mr. President, I speak for myself, but I also think I speak for most of us here. We want you to know something. We're with you. You have made a courageous decision, and it's the right decision. We are with you. The chapel erupted 
in a spontaneous standing ovation. When that happened, I stood there dumbfounded, thinking, God, what is happening here? And how is this even possible? God was coalescing his people into a unified force expressed through that ovation. From that moment forward, while there was still much work needed to guide people through the transition, there was never any doubt our employees and students would band together to accomplish what seemed like an impossible challenge. Throughout the entire three-year process, from the sale announcement to being fully operational at our new campuses, now get this, we did not receive one letter, email, or visit from any employee expressing opposition to the relocation decision. While all struggled with the transition, they did so from a perspective of implementing the change, not opposing it. Having lived through that example of remarkable functional unity, I've reflected a great deal on what caused us to come together in that fashion and what we can do to create functional unity in churches and ministry organizations. So here are some ideas this morning. First, this presentation rests on two assumptions. It rests, first of all, on the assumption that real spiritual unity is only possible through Jesus Christ. And so I'm making the assumption today that in your church or ministry organization, uh, the persons involved with you have come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ, been transformed uh, internally into a new creature in Christ, and because of that, have the capacity spiritually for a unity with other believers that simply defies human understanding. The second assumption I'm making is that in your organization or your church, you have theological unity not only around the primary doctrines of our faith, but around what are commonly called uh, second tier or second order, or what I've called in one of my books, the commitment level of theological uh, understanding. Now, the first order, first tier, or convictional level, as I like to call it, of theological understanding involves uh, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. You believe those you're a Christian, you don't believe those you're not a Christian. But the second order are, are things that Christians sometimes disagree about, but it's important that enabled for us to be able to work together that we band together around those issues. Like, for example, the issue of baptism. Uh, Baptists and everyone that works at Gateway Seminary believes in baptism by immersion. We're, we're, united, we're united around that theological commitment. But we would not say that a person who disagrees with us about that doctrine would not be a true Christian. We recognize there are some people who see things differently than we do, but yet still follow Jesus Christ. And so that's what I mean. Uh, a church or ministry organization, however, bands together not only around the primary convictional doctrines of the Christian faith, but also the secondary commitment level doctrines of our faith, where we come together and say, we do believe these things in common. Now, I'm making these two assumptions, that you have spiritual unity and shared theological convictions in your church or ministry organization. If you have those two things, then I think you're, in, then you're in, uh, prepared for or you can put in place what I then call functional unity. So let's talk now about building that aspect of unity. There are two aspects of creating functional unity that are significant. The first is mission. Functional unity rests on a shared commitment to mission. 
Now, when I made the announcement that Gateway Seminary was relocating and changing its name, we rested that decision on the long-standing commitment that we had articulated this way across our seminary system, the mission matters most. That phrase, the mission matters most, was not just first spoken during the time of the relocation, but it had actually been a part of our planning and working for years. The seminary had already been through some major uh, stressors and times of crises uh, during my presidency. For example, in 08 and 09, major economic uh, meltdown in this country certainly impacted the seminary, and we had to make a number of very painful decisions. But during that time, uh, we prioritized mission, talked openly about our commitment to our mission, and about the fact that we had to make decisions in light of the mission because the mission matters most. And so that phrase had been inculcated into our organization over the years, and when I made the announcement about the relocation and the name change, many people reflected back to me. We're making these decisions because as you've taught us and as you've modeled for us over the years, the mission matters most. Now this phrase, the mission matters most, assumes that you have a clearly articulated mission. Now let's remember what that is. A mission statement is a one-sentence statement without commas or conjunctions that describes the reason that you exist. Now when I say without commas or conjunctions, it often challenges many people to rethink their mission statement. Because when you have a mission statement that has a series of phrases coupled together with commas, what you really have is a committee-generated list of things that, are, that might be good to do that no one had the courage to delete. Yes, I really mean that. <laughs> you got to get rid of the commas from your mission statement. It's a one-sentence declaration of your reason to exist. Now, a mission statement also can't have conjunctions. You can't have the word and in it. Because now, once you've done that, you've, you've moved from articulating mission to starting to list strategies, perhaps, to fulfill the mission. For example, at Gateway Seminary, our mission is shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. Now, we spent 18 months hammering out that sentence. 18 months of faculty meetings, staff meetings, executive leadership team meetings, Drafts, redrafts, revisions, arguments, debates, discussions, compromises, improvements. While I was willing to negotiate, compromise, and discuss all aspects of the mission, I was not willing to compromise the form. I kept insisting that we get a one-sentence statement without commas or conjunctions. And so our mission is shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. Notice our mission is not theological education. That is our primary strategy. It's what we do, first of all, to accomplish our mission. But our mission extends far beyond theological education. Our, our mission must impact, for example, how we conduct our business in the business office and how we relate to students in their financial accounts. And so that department asks the question, what do we do to shape leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world? And one of the things they do is teach students the importance of stewardship, integrity, and dealing with their finances in an appropriate manner because the pattern they establish in seminary is a pattern they will repeat as they go out into their ministry leadership positions. And so not just one aspect of the seminary, but all aspects of the seminary have to be responsive to the clearly articulated mission. And so before you can have a... Uh, 
functional unity in your organization, you have to have a commitment to mission, that mission matters most. And in order to do that, you have to have a clearly articulated mission. And more than just articulating it, you have to have a shared commitment to the mission. People have to not only claim to be unified in Jesus Christ and claim to be unified theologically, but they have to come together and be unified about the mission. Now, this is a powerful force here at Gateway. Because quite frankly, uh, seminaries and most educational institutions do not pay that extravagantly. Now, we pay living wages and uh, make it possible for people to, uh, to uh, have homes and uh, families and those kinds of things. But quite honestly, almost everyone who works at Gateway could be making a lot more money if they went to the private sector and in many cases just went off to larger churches. But they've come here because they are committed to the mission. They really have a deep-seated uh, passion for shaping leaders who expand God's kingdom around the world. And because of that, they're willing to set aside personal gain, uh, personal notoriety, uh, personal individuality, in order to become a part of an organization that has such a clearly defined mission. And so you have to have a clearly articulated mission and then a shared commitment to the mission. But then, and this is so vital to creating functional unity through mission, and that is you have to have a pattern of mission-driven decision-making. Now, it is one thing to articulate a mission statement. It is another thing to trumpet that statement and call people theoretically to fulfill it, but this third step is so vital, and that is you have to have mission-driven decision-making. And I'll tell you when you know you're there. You'll know you're there when two things are happening in your organization. When number one, there is a comfort level among the leaders to challenge the senior leaders about decisions related to the mission. And number two, there is regular use of the mission statement to make the final decisions about crucial uh, choices organizations face. Let me give you a couple of examples. When I planted the church in Oregon years ago, we also had a clearly articulated mission statement that I was teaching and modeling and endeavoring to use in decision making. Uh, I did that for the first couple of years, and each year we developed a budget with a budget committee of laypersons from the church. Well, when we got to the third year, I realized that I really needed to start turning this process over to others and disengaging from it somewhat as the, church, as the founding church pastor, uh, church planter. And so uh, I called together the committee, and I said, let me train you how to do the development of a church budget. And then once I've done that, I'm going to turn you loose and let you work on it for a while without my guidance or supervision because it's important that more people in the church take on more responsibility and that I disengage from some of this control that I've demonstrated, you know, as a church planter in the first couple of years. And so I spent about the next 45 minutes to an hour uh, training these lay persons on how to develop a church budget. I had chosen a relatively young man, a young emerging executive, uh, to be the chairman of the committee. And when we concluded my presentation, he, I said, do you have any questions? Well, th there weren't really any questions, but after a few moments, uh, this young executive said, well, I, I don't have a question, but, 
but I'd just like to make a comment. I said, sure. He said, that's, that's not really how I thought we would make the budget. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, brother, here we go. I've got this young guy who doesn't have a clue, who's going to try to tell me how to do church and needs to pay attention to training more than voice his opinion, but I'll sit here patiently and listen because, you know, I want to give him an opportunity to be heard. And he said, here's what I thought we would do. We would ask all of the ministry leaders in the church to submit their budget requests to us as a budget committee. And then we would take the church's mission statement and we would evaluate every one of those requests in relationship to how it, it, it effectively accomplishes the mission. And if we can see a direct correlation to the mission, we would put that money in the budget. If we couldn't see a direct correlation to the mission, we would exclude that request from the budget. And that's how I thought we might make the budget. Well, I remember sitting there thinking, that is absolutely brilliant and humbling. Because my young executive had actually owned the mission of our church. He was actually willing to make decisions based on that mission. And he had seen me do that enough that he thought that was the normal method of doing decision-making in a church ministry setting. And here I was convoluting it with all this budget preparation process that I was laying on him, and he was trying to keep it really simple. Well, I said, you know what? That's a really good, insightful observation. Why don't we try that this year and see what happens? So... The budget committee sent out the request for the budgets, and they came back, and they sat down and did their work, and they cut out some things, but included most things. At the end, they brought forth a budget that was more than 20% greater than the previous year's budget. Now, remember, this is in the third year of a church plant, and I remember thinking when they brought forward this budget, this will be a disaster. But... I can always control spending, even though we adopt an, an, an unrealistic budget, I'll just make sure we underspend that budget and that we control spending such that we don't have a problem at the end of the year. So the budget committee brings forward the budget. And in the church meeting where they introduced it, they simply stood up and said, this is our budget for next year. It's more than 20% greater than last year, and that seems like a lot. But every single aspect of this budget was something that you generated as ministry leaders in our church or as ministry members of our church. You said we need to do these things to accomplish our mission. And we've evaluated every request against the mission statement of the church and the things that we thought were really uh, connected, we've included in this budget. And so it's a very ambitious budget because we have a very strong commitment to our mission. And we're challenging you to give this year to meet this budget. The church adopted the budget and to my great delight, the following year, the church overgave that budget. And I learned a powerful lesson, a powerful lesson. And that is when I clearly articulate mission, when I inculcate a shared commission, a commitment to that mission, and when people make a passionate commitment to that mission that I've articulated for them, when it comes to decision-making, they will make decisions based on the mission if you'll challenge them to, and then they will fund not only with their money, but also support with their lives the accomplishment of that mission. Mission-driven decision-making. Now, I said that one of the evidences that you're doing this well in your organization is when others own the mission to the point that they make decisions based on the mission. I also said you'll know you're doing it well when people feel the, the freedom to challenge executive leaders on this issue. Here at Gateway, it is a very common experience 
for me to go into leadership team meetings, lay out ideas, and for people to say, I just don't see how that really fits our mission. Now, sometimes they're wrong, and I can say, no, here's how it fits the mission, and I can show them that. And when that happens, we tend to adopt those items and move forward with them. But I could give a number of specific examples in my 17 years of leading here at Gateway when my leadership team, particularly the vice presidents, have said, uh, Jeff, that is not an idea that aligns with our mission. That's not something we should be doing. That's outside the bounds or the parameters of what we're trying to accomplish here, and we just don't think we should do that. And there have been times when I've sort of mentally stomped my feet and said, why won't they listen to me? Why can't they see this? But upon reflection, I realized they were right, and I was about to lead us to do something that, while it may have been a good thing, really wasn't at the core of what we're supposed to be doing to accomplish our mission. So, creating functional unity requires a clearly articulated mission, a shared commitment to that mission where people have made a passionate decision to fulfill that mission personally, and then decision-making that's reflected by, uh, 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 reflective of the mission, meaning that people make decisions in the organization based on the mission, and they have the freedom to challenge the leaders when the leaders are leading something to be done that really isn't aligned with the mission. Creating functional unity requires mission. Second, the second key to creating functional unity is attitude. It's attitude. And the key attitude that's demonstrated is the attitude of humility. Now, me talking about humility is humorous. A number of years ago, when I wrote The Character of Leadership, it has a chapter in it on humility. And when I got the copies of the book, I sent one to each of my three children and thanked them for their uh, contribution in my lives and encouraged them to read the book and grow from it as, as uh, an expression of you know, Christian growth and all of that. Well, my oldest son, Casey, was a college student, and, uh, you know, uh, he's an avid reader, and so he started reading the book. Well, my oldest son and I have a really uh, close relationship, but also a snarky one when it comes to our sense of humors, and we give it to each other, uh, we give it to each other uh, pretty good. <laughs> and so my son calls me and says, Dad, seriously? I said, what are you talking about? He said, seriously, I'm reading your book. I said, oh, great. He goes, no, Dad, seriously. You wrote a chapter on how to be humble? I mean, come on, Dad. Really? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I had to admit that was a little bit awkward for me. I've not been known for my humility over the years. But I have worked at it and tried to practice some spiritual disciplines of humility, and that's really what I, what I want to talk about today. Humility in leadership is demonstrated by self-limiting behavior. You know, there are three big issues that leaders have to handle well in order to have a sustained life of leadership. They're real simple, money, sex, and power. And depending on the day, you can put those in whatever order they're, they're, they, are, they challenge you. As you read through the book of Proverbs, these are the three key themes, money, sex, power. As you read through the Bible, you find these three themes repeated over and over and over as challenges and as examples where leaders have failed. A uh, passage of scripture that's in a, in a frame on my desk is from Deuteronomy 17, and it says, uh, a leader must not require many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire uh, more horses, meaning don't 
look for power and don't go to places you shouldn't go to find power and don't send people out to gain you more power. Self-limit on the issue of power. And then the next verse, the leader must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart might not go astray. Maintain your moral commitments. Maintain your marriage relationship and manage your sexuality. And then third, uh, he must not require very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Uh, be self-limiting in terms of your possessions and your money and what you have. And that doesn't mean you can't have nice things, but it does mean this. It means you'll always have less than you could have because you're self-limiting and being generous as a giver, generous to sacrifice for others, and generous to make sure that you live below the means that God has provided for you. So you create functional unity by self-limiting behavior and demonstrating that self-limiting behavior in your organization. You also demonstrate humility by transparent decision-making. Now, that means that you allow people to have input appropriately into decisions. Now, that does not mean I ask every single person's opinion on every decision at Gateway Seminary, but it does mean I almost always seek out opinions or input or information before I make a final decision. Uh, if I'm making a final decision about personnel in a particular department, I want to talk to the people who work in that department, find out what they need, what they observe, and what's, what's, uh, what's really happening before I make my decisions. Um, it doesn't mean I'm just taking a poll and I'm going to do what they say, but it does mean I really want to know what other people think as a part of my decision-making process. One of our vice presidents coined this phrase many years ago, everyone gets their say, not everyone gets their way. And I've tried to model that in leadership. I want people to have an opportunity to talk to me about decision-making. And then I'm willing to say I've heard from everyone and I've inputted some of what you've said into my decision and other parts of it I've had to disregard or, or ignore. I will make the final decision. That's the courage of leadership. But that doesn't mean you have to be autocratic and never consider what other people think as a part of a decision. When I've made controversial decisions at Gateway, many times people have said, I know you heard me, I appreciate the conversation we had, and that enables me to better accept the decision you made. I don't agree with it necessarily, but I trust you've made the best decision you know how to make, and we're going to go forward together. Now, that's humility of followers, but it's engendered by the humility of leaders who are willing to make transparent decisions. Now, that doesn't mean I tell everything to everyone. Transparency doesn't mean that all information is public. No, it just means that you have some sense of input from others, and appropriate uh, conversation and dialogue with others about decision-making. I go into my executive leadership team here every week with a list of things I want to talk about uh, to get their opinion, to get their input, to get their perspective. And quite frankly, uh, we had one of these last week where someone sent me a question and uh, I sent the answer back and said, but before I finalize this, let's run it by another vice president. And so we sent the answer to him, and he sent it back immediately. I completely disagree with you on this, and here's why. And I said, man, we need to get some more information on this. And so we went out and got some more information. Well, it turns out he was right. As I reflected more on what he said, um, I think he, he, was, he was right in giving me that counsel or that input. So sometimes, uh, you know, just seeking that kind of information uh, leads us to a better decision along the way. And because people feel like we're always trying to make the best decision, not the decision we want, they have a sense of ownership of those decisions and contribution to the unity of trying to accomplish the mission. And then finally, humility in, is demonstrated not only through self-limiting behavior and transparent decision-making, but also through decision-making that prioritizes people, prioritizes things in this order. Mission, 
people, product, personal. Let me say it again. Mission, people, product, personal. When I'm working through a major decision here at Gateway, uh, these are the four things I want to prioritize. First, how does the decision impact our mission? And if we're making a series of decisions, like, for example, during the pandemic, let's keep the mission paramount and make our decisions in light of that. Then once we've decided in light of the mission, then we're going to decide in light of the people. Now, this may be hard for some of you to hear, but mission is always more important than people. Sometimes people have to be terminated. Sometimes new people have to be hired. Sometimes people have to be retrained. Sometimes people have to be told no or redirected. People have to submit to mission and even in organizational decision-making. In one of my most controversial moments a number of years ago, a person challenged me and said, are you telling me that you prioritize the mission over the people of your school? And I said, yes, I do. Because when the people know the mission matters most, they will rally to that mission every single time. And so sometimes you have to make really hard decisions about people because the mission does matter most. Mission people, then product, then product, meaning the stuff that you make or the stuff that you do or the outcomes you're trying to achieve that may be separate from the mission in the sense that, like, for example, here, uh, you know, we have product that we have to take care of, like we have to buy computers, we have to pay light bills, and we have to take care of just the, the product of what it takes to be a seminary. Uh, you know, the word product may imply that that's your output. I don't mean it by that. I just mean it's the, the equipment, the material, all the product that it takes to run a school like ours. And then finally, personal, and that's me. I want to put myself at the end of the line. So I want to say, all right, when we're making a major decision, what is best for the mission, what's best for the people, what's required for the machinery, the product, the equipment, the, what's required for the organization to function, and then finally, what benefits me or what do I need in this situation. Mission, people, product, personal. When you invert that and put personal at the top, you will definitely destroy the missional unity of your organization because people will learn very quickly it's not about the mission it's about him or it's about her it's about them looking good it's about them getting what they want it's about them getting their promotion or their next church or their next big opportunity that's what it's really about and when you allow yourself to creep up the list to whatever level you creep up that list of those four that kind of disunity will be will be felt that kind of demoralizing disunity will be felt in your organization so, the problem today is creating functional unity, actually working together to get stuff done. It's a challenge today in churches and ministry organizations because of the external pressures that are on us right now in remarkably difficult ways. I'm trusting that you have shared commitment to Jesus and a shared theological set of commitments that give you a sense of being bound together in those regards. But now... Beyond that, if you will focus on mission and attitude, if you will clearly articulate your mission, have shared commitment and passionate commitment to your mission, and then establish patterns of mission-driven decision-making, you will see the unity rise in your organization. And then as you demonstrate humility of leadership, practicing self-limiting behavior or self-restraint, transparent decision-making that is inclusive to the point that it can be, not meaning that everyone gets a vote on every decision, but that people have a sense that you're listening, 
to input about your decisions as they relate to the mission. And then prioritizing your decision-making mission first, then people, then the product or the requirements of the organization, and then finally personal, meaning what you have invested or what you may receive from the decision. You have a significant challenge today to create functional unity in your church or your ministry organization. Put these principles into practice. They'll make some immediate improvement in what you're doing, but if you'll practice them over the months and years to come, you'll wake up in three to five to ten years with a remarkably unified church or missions organization that will give you a great sense of momentum as you go forward. Thanks for listening today. Put it into practice as you lead on.